You're all very welcome, whatever state you're in, in mind or in body, you're welcome to join with us as we worship our God. Just a reminder, at the end of the service, when you're ready to leave, please just stand up and then move directly to the exit, keeping a two-meter distance from others as you do that. And then we are meeting again uh, this evening at 6 p.m. That's online only to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel, and that will be followed by an online coffee time. And then just letting you know in advance of next Sunday, Tracy Crutchley is producing some Easter boxes. Those will be sold here next Sunday at four pounds a box, and the proceeds for that will be going to Just Caring. If you joined us last Sunday night, you'll have heard from Pete Mountford about Just Caring and the work that they do, and that's where the the money for those boxes will be going. So if you'd like one, you can uh, plan ahead for next week. I'm not sure how many there are, but um, there are 20 also. Got to get in quick. And I don't know if you take advance orders, Tracy, but uh, anyway, uh, Tracy might, if you see her today, keep one for you. As I said, we have come to worship God and to worship Him together, and we're going to begin with a call from Scripture to fix our eyes on our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. So if you'll stand with me, we'll join in these words from Hebrews chapter 12, speaking them really to one another in God's presence, and then the musicians will lead us in a song after we've sat down again. So please stand with me and join in these words of Scripture. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Still to prosper, you have not forgotten us. 
wisdom unimagined Who could understand your ways Reigning high above the heavens Reaching down in endless grace You're the lifter of the lowly and kind You surround and you uphold me And your promises are my delight Your plans are still to prosper You have not forgotten us You are with us in the fire and the Lord God, we are so thankful for these truths. We take our stand on these truths that you are working in us and for us. That even in the darkest valleys of life, you are faithful. Surrounding us with your compassion, lifting us up by your great strength. 
And as we consider your love and your sovereign greatness, we have to confess our own weakness and sin. We confess that this past week we have sinned against you and against each other in thought, word, and deed. We have sinned through negligence, through weakness, and through our own deliberate fault. Have mercy on us. Cleanse us from our sins. Help us to overcome our faults through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in this time together, as we give our attention to your word, will you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? As we look to him, will you challenge us and inspire us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles? Give us new desire and new strength to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now that reminds us how fixing our eyes on Jesus helps us to honor God with our own lives. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 2, and as Don reads this for us, notice how Paul starts this passage with what we are called to do, and then he shows how Jesus has done it already. He has gone before us, showing the way and preparing the way. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
Well, gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life, my glory bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine, I can say God is mine, yet not I. dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead oh the night has been won and I shall overcome yet not I but through Christ in me show the price it has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my heart and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this I hope my sin has been defeated Jesus now and ever Still 
It's been a couple of weeks since we looked at Deuteronomy, so let me just remind you, this book is a series of sermons. Moses is preaching to the Israelites as they're camped east of the Jordan River, ready to enter the promised land of Canaan. And in the opening chapters of the book, Moses' text for these sermons has been the Israelites' own history. That's what he's been using as the basis of his instruction. There's a lot to be learned from the failures and the successes of that history. Moses has reminded the Israelites how their parents' generation came right to the edge of the promised land, but then turned back in unbelief. They didn't believe the Lord was faithful enough or strong enough to overcome the big people and the large city walls in Canaan. And because of their unbelief, that entire generation died in the desert. For 38 years, the Israelites tramped around the wilderness until that unbelieving generation was gone. And then in Moses' sermon, he reminded the current generation of what they had seen and experienced of God's faithfulness and strength. After the old generation died, the new generation had responded to God's renewed call They'd marched towards Canaan again, and God gave them victories over the big people and the large city walls their parents had been afraid of. As they marched, they passed through the land of the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites without touching or claiming that land, and then at God's command, the Israelites took possession of the land occupied by Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. That's where we paused last time. And now as we pick up this morning, Moses reflects in his sermon on what happened after those victories against Sihon and Og. We're going to read from chapter 3, verse 12, to the end of chapter 3, verse 29. Deuteronomy 3, verse 12. Of the land that we took over at that time... I gave the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory north of Aror by the Arnon Gorge, including half the hill country of Gilead together with its towns. The rest of Gilead and also all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The whole region of Argob in Bashan used to be known as a land of the Rephaites. Jer, a descendant of Manasseh, took the whole region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites. It was named after him. So that to this day, Bashan is called Havoth-Jer. And I gave Gilead to Machir. But to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory extending from Gilead down to the Arnon Gorge, the middle of the gorge being the border, and out to the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites. The western border was the Jordan in the Arabah, from Kinnereth to the Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men, armed for battle, must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. However, your wives, your children, and your livestock... I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow Israelites as he has to you. 
and they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. At that time, I commanded Joshua, you have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. This is God's word. And if the previous sections were about God's trustworthiness and God's unlimited power, this passage focuses on the responsibility of God's people. It challenges Israel and it challenges us to fight for others. And as we look at this, we'll see that it parallels the passage we read earlier from Philippians. That passage in Philippians began with these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Those New Testament words call us to fight for others. And here in Deuteronomy, we see those words worked out in the lives of the Israelites. Moses shows we're to fight for others when we're prospering and comfortable and when we are deprived and disappointed. First in verses 12 to 20, the challenge is fight for others when you're prospering and comfortable. There were 12 tribes in Israel, all descended from Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And the land originally promised to the 12 tribes was here, on the west side of the Jordan River. But before Israel crosses the Jordan, two and a half tribes are given land east of the river. The area is referred to as Gilead. And in these verses, Moses describes how he gave this land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And I don't see any indication that was a bad thing. As it's presented to us, it's a blessing from the Lord for those tribes. Those two and a half tribes had moved forward in obedience to God. They had shown faith in God 
when he called Israel to face Sihon and Og in battle. These two and a half tribes fought in those battles. And now they receive the land of Gilead as an inheritance from God. Moses divides the territory of Sihon and Og between them. So their fight is already won. Their enemies are already defeated. They have arrived. If you glance down to verse 19, Moses says to them, I know you have much livestock. In this culture, that's an indication of wealth. These two and a half tribes not only have land, they have livestock to fill it with and farm it with. The ranch is theirs and it's buzzing with life. Probably this plunder came, uh, this livestock came from the plunder that was taken from Sihon and Og. And it means these two and a half tribes have it made. Well, they might still want to stroll down to the banks of the Jordan and sing a few songs as the nine and a half tribes cross the river to claim their inheritance. But surely at that point, once they've waved goodbye to the others with best wishes, surely then the two and a half tribes can get on with enjoying the prosperity and the comfort God has given them. Now, of course, they'll want to keep up with the news from across the river. Of course, in their prayer meetings, they'll certainly mention the nine and a half tribes. They are part of the same family after all. But they can't reasonably be expected to do more than that. Can they? Well, look what Moses says to the two and a half tribes in verse 18. The Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. But all your able-bodied men armed for battle must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. And then he says in verse 20, that's to happen until the Lord gives rest to your fellow Israelites as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. Back in chapter 1, we were introduced to the idea that's very significant in this book, the idea of brotherhood. I think that's the best word we have to get the sense of this. Words like congregation and even family don't quite capture the strength of it. A brotherhood stands together no matter what shoulder to shoulder, through thick and thin. If necessary, a brotherhood fights together as one. The perfect motto for a brotherhood is all for one and one for all. And if that sounds too male-oriented for your liking, maybe we could call it a bristerhood. In any case, that's what God's people are to be. Not a loose collection of vaguely like-minded people, not a group of acquaintances who check in with each other every so often. God's people are to be a brotherhood. And Moses' words show us part of being a brotherhood involves costly commitment. The two and a half tribes are to fight with the nine and a half until all 12 tribes 
possess their inheritance. And in fact, the principle seems to be that the already prospering don't just join the fight across the Canaan, they are to lead the fight. You notice that in verse 18, Moses says, the warriors from the two and a half tribes are to cross over ahead of the other Israelites. They're to be the shock troops on the front line. So there's no sense whatsoever of, well, I'm all right, and I hope it turns out all right for you too. Those who are all right lead the line until everyone is all right, until the last battle is over. And then we all enjoy prosperity and comfort together. Doesn't this give color and shape to Paul's words in Philippians? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, speaking about how God's people are to be different from every other people. He says, sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. Gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us in community. The life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is highly personal, but never merely individual. Always there is a family, a tribe, a nation, church. The gospel pulls us into community. One of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. As we go through Deuteronomy, we'll see it could be called the gospel according to Moses. It's full of the good news of God's grace and salvation. And here we see the difference that that good news makes in Moses' context. How it changes me into us. And if we think about applying this to our own context, we could talk about high wealth and a nice home and the free time that comes with, with retirement. We could talk about how those Things are not blessings to be hoarded up for ourselves and used just for ourselves. Those things are prosperity and comfort we can put to work helping others. In their lack, and their need, in the battles they're facing. And like the two and a half tribes, those of us blessed with the most prosperity and comfort should probably be leading the line when it comes to standing with others in their battles. We could develop our application along those kind of lines, but instead, let's talk about something a bit different as we try to apply this. Let's talk about online church. During this last year, online church has been the main kind of church. For some of the time, it's been the only kind of church, at least in this country. 
And for that reason, we are very, very thankful for it, aren't we? There have been some undeniable benefits from it. People who would never have entered a church building have joined in online. People have heard about Jesus. People have come to faith in Jesus who otherwise might never have given him their attention at all. So there have been positives. However, without denying those positives, as we consider here the kind of brotherhood we find in Deuteronomy and all through the Scriptures, the kind of full-blooded commitment that's to characterize God's people, as we consider that, Surely we have to say that online church is like a body with no arms or legs. There's certainly life there, but there's almost no ability to do what a body is supposed to do. Now let me emphasize, if you're currently at home, I'm not about to tell you when to come back to church. You have to make that decision for yourself. And I realize some of you are not in a position to come to church at the moment. I understand that. I'm not trying to be nasty or insensitive or judgmental. But I am trying to show how this ancient word of Scripture speaks to our current situation. And I believe challenges many of us in our current situation. It challenges me because I like online church. I like it because it's comfortable. I can feel part of things without actually doing any of the costly, uncomfortable stuff that's involved in really being part of things. As I watch online church at home, I can think pleasant thoughts about my brothers and sisters from a comfortable distance. I don't have to speak to people I don't feel like speaking to. I can wish all of them well without the hard work of paying attention to my brothers and sisters and standing with them in their struggles. Online church is the equivalent of sitting in Gilead, enjoying our own well-being while our brothers and sisters are left to fight for their lives out there somewhere. Again, as I said, the aim here is not to upset anyone. It's just to highlight the fact that online church has been a useful second best during the past year. But let's not lose sight of the fact that it is second best. When we join in at home, our experience of church is not church as it's meant to be. From the beginning, God's plan for his people has been that they stand together and fight their battles together. It has not been God's plan for his people to sit at home in comfort while those brothers and sisters face bereavement and temptation and depression, and illness, and abusive relationships, and unemployment, and single parenthood, and spiritual doubt, 
and maybe even suicidal thoughts all by themselves along with whatever other battles come along. The Bible is consistent in its message. The church is not just about me and God. It's also about ministering to one another. And I know very well that doesn't all happen in just one or two hours a week as we sit together in a building. Of course not. But it does start in those hours together. As we focus on God's word together, as we see one another, and that experience reminds us we are in this together. We are united in Christ. We are a brotherhood in Christ. We are called to bear one another's burdens, to fight side by side. And then, having had that experience of united worship, having been reminded the church is about we instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me, having been reminded of that, then we're much more likely to actually live that way the rest of the week. Online church makes it easier and much more likely that out of sight will lead to out of mind for the rest of the week. So while it may be the case that online church is here to stay, and I'm sure God will continue to do good things through it, let's not begin to think of it as a substitute for meeting together. For a while, it has been a very useful second best but that is all it will ever be. And again, as we think of our passage, maybe it's those of us who are sailing along nicely in life who are most tempted to prefer online church. It's not always the case, of course. Sometimes it can be a convenient way to keep our sin and struggles hidden from others. But I think most who have struggles and difficulties can easily see the inadequacy of meeting online. They, I think, don't need convincing that a church with no arms and legs is not much of a church at all. So as we consider the months ahead of us, let's hear God's call to fight for others. And let's not fall into thinking we can do that from the comfort of our living room. And let's consider the example of our Savior. Because He did what we are called to do. And He did it to a degree we will never be able to grasp. If the two and a half tribes had comfort and prosperity east of the Jordan in Gilead, How much more did the Son of God have those things at His Father's side in heaven? But Philippians says this about Christ. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
Isn't that the ultimate example of what Paul meant earlier in this passage? When he talked about not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others? Isn't this the ultimate example of what the two and a half tribes did in a small way when they left Gilead to lead the fight over in Canaan? The Son of God, enjoying all the prosperity and comfort of heaven, good things that were His by right, and yet He came to join us in our lack. He came to lead the battle for us so we could enter into our inheritance. So when Jesus calls you and me to set aside our comfort and to fight for others, he's asking us to follow him in something he's already done in spades. The second part of this passage challenges, challenges us in a different way. If we get the idea of helping others when we're prosperous and comfortable, then these next verses might seem like they come from another world entirely. They're so countercultural for us. The challenge here is to fight for others when you're deprived and disappointed. Back in chapter 1, Moses recalled how, along with the previous generation of Israelites, God had refused Moses himself entry into the land of Canaan. That previous generation had been denied entry because of their unbelief. And because of Moses' own unbelieving behavior at that time, God said, you shall not enter it either, Moses. That was 38 years ago at this point. And what has Moses been doing for those 38 years? Sulking, nurturing his own grievances, hiding in a cave? No. He has patiently led the Israelites until his own generation was all dead. And then he marched at the head of the new generation as they fought Sihon and Og. And Moses did that knowing all the while he was leading these people to a blessed place he would never experience for himself. And here, as he looks back now to these quite recent victories over Sion and Og, Moses speaks about his own excitement in the aftermath of those victories. Excitement that prompted him to broach the subject again with the Lord. Look at verse 23. I pleaded with the Lord, Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan that fine hill country and Lebanon. Moses is an old man now and he's excited by what God has begun to do. After 38 years of defeat and gloom, trudging around the wilderness, things have begun to move. The Lord is beginning to show his greatness 
The land is within touching distance. Surely the Lord might review Moses' situation and let him set foot in Canaan. 38 years of faithfulness. Maybe God will reward that with just a taste of the promised land. And Moses doesn't ask for it with any arrogance. He's not demanding it of the Lord. Yes, he pleads, but he pleads as the Lord's servant. Please, Lord, just let me taste a little bit of the blessing you have for this people. But God says no. And it's a final and definitive no. Look at the middle of verse 26. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes since you are not going to cross this Jordan. God says you can look, Moses, but you're not going to taste it. You're not going to cross that river and that's final. What a bitter pill for Moses to swallow. And it's all the more bitter because it was the unbelief of the Israelites and their persistent grumbling and complaining that wore him down to the point where he did what he did 38 years ago. Acting for a moment like he was God. Striking the rock with his staff and providing water for the people. Instead of obeying God and giving the glory to God. Now, of course, Moses made his own decision. Nobody forced him to do what he did. He was responsible for what he did. But the fact remains, it was the Israelites themselves who tempted Moses to do what he did. His current deprivation and disappointment is partly due to his own sin, and it's partly due to these people around him. It's not all his own fault. And that makes the bitter pill even more bitter. And it's not fair. Isn't that our reaction to this? It's just not fair on Moses to be denied the blessing of Canaan. Didn't he lead the people out of Egypt? Didn't he soldier on, leading them for all those miserable years in the desert? Why doesn't God just let him in? Doesn't he deserve it? Why is God like this? That may well be our reaction, but it is not how Moses reacts. He has asked the Lord, and he has asked as a servant, not as someone who has a right to the blessing. He asked as a servant, and when God says no, Moses responds as a servant still. No doubt he is bitterly disappointed. But what does he do? He rouses himself to deliver God's instruction to these people who will enter Canaan. The sermons in this book are delivered in the midst of Moses' own disappointment. Instead of wallowing in it, 
He pours himself into preparing these people to flourish in a place he will never go to himself. And when he's not preaching these sermons in his downtime, Moses is preparing Joshua to lead the people in. That's what God tells him to do here in verse 28. Commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. If you glance back up to verse 21, you see an example of Moses doing what God calls him to do, calling Joshua not to be afraid, to move forward trusting the Lord. Moses' own hopes have not been fulfilled. But he gives himself still to fighting for the future of the people. And he faithfully encourages and strengthens Joshua. And this is what you and I are called to do. To fight for others even when we're deprived and disappointed ourselves. We're called not to focus on the fairness or unfairness of our situation as we see it. Not to pour our energy into forever lobbying God to give us the things He has denied us. Not to focus our prayers and energy into grasping after the prosperity and comfort we don't have. And not to retreat from God and His people, to sulk and nurse our wounds in our own little cave of disappointment. But instead we are called, even in our loss and sadness, to do what we can to strengthen and encourage those around us. To help them move forward in their battles even if it means God leads them into blessing that He never gives to us. Isn't this getting at the heart of what it means to be a brotherhood? Isn't this showing us a new depth to Paul's words in Philippians when he talks about not looking to our own interests but each of us to the interests of the others? And isn't this what Jesus himself did? Summarized in that same passage in Philippians. Paul tells us that Christ being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We've seen in Deuteronomy how Moses pleaded with God in prayer about altering the death sentence he'd been given. And here, the words obedient to death are referring to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus pleaded with his Father about his death sentence, the deprivation that lay ahead of him. Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
meaning the cup of suffering Jesus was about to drink on the cross. Jesus asked. His father's answer was no. And what did Jesus do? He rose from his knees and he went willingly to the cross. And if Moses' death outside Canaan was partially because of the people's sin, Jesus' death on the cross was totally because of the people's sin. One of our songs says, On the cross Jesus was suffering to save the lost. He fights for breath. He fights for me. When he received his father's final no in Gethsemane, Jesus didn't slink off to bemoan the injustice of it all. He submitted willingly to the cross to fight and win the battle you and I could never win. He fought for us till his last breath. And his last breath brought victory. His death defeated sin and death and hell. And so when Jesus now calls you and me to fight for others, even in the midst of our own deprivation and disappointment, Jesus is only asking us to follow him in something he has done already in spades. So are you single and you don't want to be? Because you've lost the spice you loved? Or never had the spice you wanted? Has your career not turned out like you dreamt it would turn out? Has your health not stood up like you hoped it would stand up? Have your finances not gathered momentum like you expected them to? Have your friends not stood by you like they promised they would? Is your family not what you prayed it would be? There are many ways you and I can miss out on things we desperately wanted. There are dozens of ways life can disappoint us. And the Bible doesn't deny that. But it does ask us how we are going to respond to that disappointment. Are we going to spend the rest of our lives spinning the wheels of our disappointment? Playing our own sad little song on our own little violin? over and over again? Or will we follow the example of our Savior and the example of Moses before him as he turned from his own disappointment of missing out on Canaan and worked to prepare Joshua and prepare the people so they would make the most of the blessings God had for them? And here's the beautiful thing about this. Yes, Moses missed out on Canaan 
He missed out on a significant blessing on this earth. But Moses did not miss out on God's greatest blessing. The book of Hebrews says that Moses, along with the other Old Testament people of God, had an even higher goal than Canaan. As precious as that hope was for them, Hebrews says they were longing for an even better country, a heavenly one. And Moses has not missed out on that blessing. That eternal, incomparable blessing is his. It's his for the same reason it's yours and mine. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself to death on a cross and was then exalted by his Father to the highest place. Today, Jesus Christ is risen. He is Lord. And all his people receive the eternal life he won at the cross. So today, you and I, we can deal with deprivation. We can deal with loss and disappointment. Even bitter disappointment. We can deal with that not because we're made of stone, not because nothing gets to us. No, we can deal with those things and even help others at the same time because we know there are greater blessings ahead of us. Blessings that will make all our losses and disappointments pale in comparison. And those future blessings are there for us because our Savior fought for us all the way to his last breath. So this week, if things are nice and rosy for you, please don't be so in love with your prosperity and comfort that you hold back from your brothers and sisters in Christ. They need you to stand with them and enter into their battles alongside them. And if this is a hard and unpleasant period in your life, don't let your losses and disappointments consume you. Remember the greater things that are still ahead of you. And commit to helping your brothers and sisters to press on into what God has for them. As we close, let's just take a moment to consider what that means for each of us personally. And if you are still at a distance from Jesus, maybe you've not yet turned to him as your Savior, You can do that too in this moment of quiet. So let's take a moment personally in the quiet to consider what we've heard, speak to God about our situation, and then the musicians will lead us in our final songs.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And now he says to us, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Amen.
There is strength within sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. Yeah, you're working and awaiting. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Sing his heart. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Yes, we trust you. It's a loving king. Thank you. 